You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. So we pick it up, Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 34, where we look at the communion cup. And it says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given it, when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after, after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so now Luke starts by telling us that, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the, the, the Passover meal, on that night Jesus takes the cup. And, and he holds it up and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now he said it's the new covenant, which, which prompts us to wonder, well, if that's the new covenant, then what was the old covenant? Well, now the old covenant was referring to, to that event called the Passover that we can read about back in Exodus chapter 12. And if you remember in Exodus chapter 12, this was a night where God's judgment was going to come upon the land of Egypt. And, 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 and the firstborn of every home was going to be struck down. And, and if you remember, God had told Moses that the only way that his people, that is the Jewish people, would be spared of this judgment was that if each household took a lamb and was to sacrifice that lamb and then take the blood of that lamb and then wipe it on the doorposts of their home. And then that night, when, 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 when God's judgment came, any home that was covered under the blood would have been spared of God's judgment. God's judgment would have passed over that home. Well, now Jesus takes that cup, the, the cup of Passover, and he says, from now on, every time that you have this cup, this cup is no longer going to remind you of the old covenant under Moses where the people were spared God's judgment because, because of the blood of the lamb. But now this cup is going to remind you of the new covenant made in my blood. Because my blood was shed on the cross, now God's judgment will pass over you. And so in effect, it's saying that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover. That he fulfilled Passover. Uh, that's why on one occasion, in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist points at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so Jesus fulfilled the Passover. And so that evening, he, he takes the cup. He says, From here on out, this cup will remind you that my blood was shed so that God's judgment would pass over you. But then he makes an announcement. He announces that one of them, and of course we know that was Judas, but that one of them was going to betray Jesus. And then after that announcement, he then gives a warning to Peter. So let's skip ahead a few verses and see what that warning was. We skip ahead to verses 31 through 34, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So now having taken the cup, Having, having told them that this cup is going to remind you that, my, that God's judgment will pass over you because of my sacrifice. 
He then turns to Peter and warns him and says, Peter, the devil wants to sift you like wheat. Now, what's the word picture here? Well, the word picture is that, you know, in that day when they would take the harvest of wheat, they just cut down everything, they'd cut down the stalk and, and, and the whole thing, the head of grain, all of it, just one thing, bring all of it into the threshing floor. And, in, and on the threshing floor, there'd be two oxen harnessed together. And then, and then they would kind of walk in a circle. And they would just lay all that stuff on the floor and the oxen with their, with their sharp hooves and under, under, the, under the weight of the oxen, it would just kind of crush everything, break up the stalks and kind of separate the, the grain. And, and, and then afterwards, they would just kind of scoop all that up and put it in a sieve. And then they would shake the, the holy tar out of it. And, and, and the grain, which was heavier, would fall through the holes in the sieve. But then the, 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 the straw and the chaff and all that, because it was lighter, it would stay in the sieve. And so in effect, Jesus was saying, Peter, that's what the devil wants to do to you. He wants to sift you like wheat. Now, if, 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 if Peter was anything like you and I, he probably would have been thinking the same thing you and I might have been thinking. He might have been thinking, yeah, but you said no, right? You're not actually going to let him sift me like wheat, are you? You see, this just reminds us that, that there are times in our lives where God allows us to be sifted, where God allows us to be tested. He allows these things to happen. And maybe, just like he, he did for Peter, maybe even allows the devil himself to sift you. That's what happened to Job. We read in the, in the Bible that God allowed the devil to tempt and to test Job. And we read that as a result, in the end, Job lost all 10 of his adult children. They all died. He lost all of his possessions, all of his wealth, wealth, and he lost his health. He was afflicted with a horrible disease. And as we read his story, we're like, you know, why would God allow that? Why would God allow this to happen to Job? I mean, the Bible says Job was the most faithful man in all the earth. So of all people, why would God allow that? Well, here's Job's answer to that very question. Job put it this way. He said in Job chapter 23, verse 10, it says, When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. You see, he understood that this testing was for refining, like refining gold. You see, in those days, how it would work is, is the goldsmith, to, to, to purify the gold, to refine the gold, he would burn it. He would subject it to, to, to as high of heat as, as you could possibly stand. And in the process, you were literally burning the impurities out of it. And so as it melted down and heated up, all the impurities would, would surface to the top, then you would skim it off, and then you'd let it cool down and harden, and then you would repeat the process. Melt it down, skim it off, melt it down, skim it off, melt it down, skim it off, over and over and over again. In, in fact, we're told that the test that the goldsmith would use to, to prove that the gold was as pure as it could possibly be was that after he melted it down and, and would skim it off, melt it down and skim it off over and over and over again, he would keep doing that until finally he could see his own reflection in that liquefied gold. And that's when it was absolutely pure. And in the same way, listen, that's what happens with us. God allows life, the, the furnace of life, to melt us down. And then we get skimmed off and then melted down and skimmed off. And you may have those times in your life where you're wondering, you know, why is this happening to me? Or it keeps happening again and again. You're like, you know, why do things like this always keep happening to me? Over and over and over. And could it be that he's allowing you to be refined? In the fire, melted down, skimmed off, melted down, skimmed off. Why? Because he wants to see his reflection in you. He wants to see less of you and more of him. 
And so this is what's going to happen to Peter as he says, Satan, the, the devil has desired to sift you like wheat. But then Jesus goes on and he says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In effect, he's saying, Peter, listen, believe it or not, you're about to go through, through a trial. You're about to face a test that's going to make you question everything you believe. It's going to make you question whether you believe in me or not. In fact, Peter, listen, you're actually going to deny me, not once, not twice. You're going to deny me three times. And, and, and what this test is going to prove is, is that you're not as strong as you think you are. But in the end, listen, it's going to make you stronger than you actually are. Peter can't believe what he's hearing. I mean, Peter hears this and he's like, Lord, that, there's no way that's going to happen to me. I mean, listen, I'll go to prison with you. I'll go to death with you. I mean, other people might deny you, but I would never do something like that. He can't believe what he's hearing. Kind of reminds me of Pearl Harbor. You know, back, it was Sunday, December 7th, 1941, when 183 Japanese zeros at 7.50 in the morning came in and bombed Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Now, the backstory is, is that the night before, the crew of the USS Arizona had just won the Battle of the Bands, and as a, as a reward, as a prize, they, they were rewarded with sleeping in the next morning. Now, while they were sleeping in, however, radar picked up those 183 Japanese zeros, but the people manning the radar made a mistake. They thought they were friendlies. They thought it was American B-17 bombers, and they didn't warn anybody. And as a result, 2,800 United States soldiers died, including the 1,177 crew members of the USS Arizona who were sleeping in because they won the Battle of the Bands. Their guard was down, and that's when it happened. And listen, in the same way, Peter didn't fail because he wasn't warned. Peter didn't fail because he wasn't ready. No, Jesus warned him. Peter failed because he thought he was stronger than he really was. He didn't think that he would ever do something like that. That's why the Bible warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. It says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. In other words, when you think it'll never happen to you, that's when it's about to happen to you. And that's what happened to Peter. So Jesus takes the cup. He reminds them that, that because of his blood that was shed, God's judgment will pass over them. But then he gives this warning, not only about Judas, but a warning to Peter. And now with that, we skip to verse 39 and 40 where we see that Jesus now goes to a place of crushing, pressing, and pain. Verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, the other gospel accounts, like Matthew and, and the gospel of Mark, uh, they let us know that specifically Jesus brought three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. And, and, and in fact, Matthew chapter 26 tells us that when they got to the Mount of Olives, he brought the, Peter, James, and John with them specifically into a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, this wasn't the first time that Jesus took those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, the, the three musketeers, if you would, it's not the first time that he, that he took them with him. You may remember on one occasion when, when Jesus had, had raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Who did he bring with him? Peter, James, and John. On another occasion, Jesus went to the so-called Mount of Transfiguration. Who did he bring with him? Peter, James, and John. 
you know, conventional wisdom, you know, we would look at that and think, well, well, they must have been his favorites, right? They must have been like the teacher's pet because he, he brought them everywhere. Well, no, that's one theory. That's one possibility. But, but here's another possibility. See, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I was always in trouble because I was always talking and, and always joking and always interrupting. And so er, every school I went to, and listen, I went to a lot of different schools, and yet, and yet the same thing happened to me at every single school I went to. Every single school, the teacher would always say, hey, Paul Bhutan, why don't you bring your desk up here and sit with me? Now, was it because she loved me so much? Was it because I was her favorite student? No, it was because I was, I was the class clown. I was the biggest troublemaker. She's like, I've got to keep my eye on you. And it could have been that, that Jesus was like, hey, you three, you're coming with me. I cannot take my eyes off you. The rest of y'all, you, you're good. You can do whatever. I trust you. You three over here. And so he brings Peter, James, and John into the garden. And, and by the way, the Gospel of John tells him this was his, he did this frequently. He would go to the garden frequently to pray. So he brings them to this place of prayer, but now the place of prayer becomes a place of pain, as we'll see in just a minute. Isaiah 53, verse 3 tells us he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so he brings them into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, by the way, the, the, the name Gethsemane is a Greek word that literally means the olive press. The olive press. In fact, when you, when, when you go to Israel, and in fact, Amy and I were, were talking about trying to plan another trip for the church uh, to Israel maybe in the next couple of years. So, so be watching for that. But when you go to Israel, you'll be able to see this place for yourself. You'll be able to go for yourself into the, the garden uh, of Gethsemane. And, and when you go in there, you'll see that it, it, it's, it's a garden of olive trees. And then when you go in, uh, they, they actually have a replica of, a, of an olive press. I'll show you a couple different pictures here. But as you can see, it's, it's, uh, the olive press was this, this massive grindstone uh, that, 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 that crushes the olive to get the oil out of it. And so in the same way that, that the, the olive is crushed to, to get the oil out, Jesus' life is crushed to give you life. Hebrews chapter 4, verse, verse 15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but, but was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so this is reminding us that, 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 you know, in those times in your life when you feel like you're being crushed, when you're in a grindstone, when life is pressing in on you and pressing in on you and it's like squeezing the life right out of you, Jesus has been there. He understands that. That's where he is right now. He is in Gethsemane. And it's like the life is being squeezed right out of him. And when you think about it, what, what an emotional night this must have been for Jesus where we know that, that Judas, by this point, is already off, planning his dirty work as he's putting the plan into action to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew about that. And not only that, but now Jesus drops another bombshell that, 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 that one of them, one of, one, of, one of the three musketeers, one of the inner circle, Peter himself, would deny Jesus three times. And so as Jesus is making his, his way, his final journey to the cross, it's as if the vice is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Knowing what, what, what lies ahead, knowing the pain, the torment, the horrors that lie ahead called the crucifixion. And so knowing what's coming, Jesus now brings his three disciples, Peter, James, and John with them in the garden. And he says, pray, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And now on that note, verses 41 and 42, these verses talk about what we might call the cup of wrath. 
the cup of wrath, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So this is interesting. Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And we wonder, well, what cup? Is it the communion cup, the Passover cup that we were just talking about? What cup is he talking about? Well, now it's interesting. In, in the scripture, uh, the, the cup of the Lord is often used to speak of the wrath of God, the, the, the judgment of God, the fury of God. For example, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. It says, you have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, and you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Psalm 75 uses the same metaphor. Habakkuk chapter 2 uses the same metaphor. And Jeremiah chapter 25 uses the same metaphor of, 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 of the cup being the wrath of God. The idea is that when you drink of the cup of the Lord, you are having his wrath come upon you. And so when Jesus is saying, Father, you know, if, if it's your will, remove this cup, but not my will, your will be done. In effect, he's saying, you know, Father, listen, I am willing for, for your wrath for your fury, for your judgment to be poured out on me. I'm willing to have all of the wrath that the whole world deserves to have on them because of their own sin. I'm willing to have all of that wrath placed on me so that they could be spared that wrath themselves. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or as it's been said, he paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we cannot pay. And so that night he takes a cup. He says, this cup's going to remind you that, that, that because of my blood that was shed, God's judgment will pass over you. But then he speaks of the cup of wrath as if to say that he's going to take that cup upon himself so that it doesn't have to come upon you. And now as we pick it up in verse 44, we skip down a verse we're going to find out what the cup means to us. It says in verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now it says that he was in agony, first of all. The Greek term here is agnoia. It, it, it means to struggle for victory. It means to wrestle. It means to fight. But it's being used in the context of prayer. It says, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. You know, they have a saying down in the South that says, don't just say your prayers, pray your prayers. In other words, you know, when you're praying, don't, don't just pray to pray. Don't just, don't just you know, uh, praying, you know, uh, just go through the motions. See, Jesus wasn't going through the motions of prayer. He was actually praying. You know, some of us, we just go through the motions, right? You know, maybe at night we pray something like, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. And, and by the way, why is it that when we put our little ones down at night, we put little Johnny down at night, why is it that that's always the prayer that we pray for them? You know, we put them down, we tuck them in, we're like, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And at this, this point, little Johnny's freaked out that, that, that God's going to take his soul before he wakes up. So we comfort him with these words and we say, nighty night, don't let them, you know, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. <laughs> I mean, how abusive is that? 
But you see, Jesus wasn't just, just praying to pray. He wasn't just going through the motions of prayer. No, he, he, was, he was doing battle in prayer. He was struggling in prayer. In fact, here's how intensely he was struggling. Later on, verse 44 goes on to say that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, medical experts tell us that this is a rare medical phenomenon known as hematidrosis, where you're under so much stress that literally the, the tiny blood vessels in, in, your, in, in, your, in your sweat glands burst, causing a combination of both sweat and blood to come out. So it looks like you are sweating drops of blood. And so this tells us that Jesus was under great intense emotional stress, as if he was being crushed, as we keep saying. Hebrews 5, 7 says this. It says, During the days of Jesus' life and ministry on the earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. This was how Jesus was praying in the garden. There were tears. There were loud cries to the one who could save him from death. He was doing battle in the garden. Where? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Literally, the place of the olive press. And so in the place where, 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 where the olive was crushed to bring out the oil, Jesus was crushed to bring your salvation. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And that crushing took place in Gethsemane. It's interesting, back in 2019, uh, that was the last time that we, we led, for our church, led a trip uh, to Israel. And, and back in, in 2019, when we went there, one of the places we went to was, was, was the garden tomb. In fact, I'll show you a picture. This is the, the picture of the garden tomb, and, and this is believed by many to be the, 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 the tomb that Jesus might have been buried in. So we got to check it out. We went inside, and guess what? It was empty. It's still empty. Why? Because he's risen. He's not there. And so uh, we, 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 we went from there, uh, and, and, and then we went and had, had communion in, in, in the garden. And when we had communion in the garden, uh, they, they, they served us communion in these, in these little olive wood cups. Looked like, like this. And so you, they gave us communion in these cups, and then they let, let us keep these cups as a souvenir. In fact, Amy and I and many of you that were on the trip, you still probably have your cups. Well, now you know what? Every one of you today get your very own cup. And so, uh, we're, because at the end of the service, we're going to have communion. It'll be served in these olive wood cups. But in many ways, this cup is a reminder, first of all, of the, of the Passover cup, the cup that Jesus took. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, meaning that because his blood was shed on the cross, God's judgment will pass over you. But also this cup is a reminder of the cup of wrath that Jesus took upon himself. Where Jesus said, Father, if it's your will that this cup would be taken from me, uh, he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. As if to say, Father, I'm willing to have the, the, the wrath that the world deserves placed on me so that they could be spared. But then Gethsemane reminds us that there's yet another cup. You see, during the Passover feast, uh, they, they would often close the Passover feast by singing a song called the Hallel. Now, during the Hallel, uh, they would pick up the Passover cup, and, or as it's called in Hebrew, kosher which literally is translated, the cup of salvation. 
So they would take the Passover cup, the kosher shoot, the, the, the cup of salvation. And while they're singing in the Hallel, there's a handful of different scriptures they would quote in that song. And as they held up this cup, the, the, the kosher shoot, the cup of salvation, they would quote from Psalm 116, verse 13, that says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And so it was believed that this was the cup. As Jesus took it, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, the cup of salvation. And we look at the Psalms, it's as if the psalmist is intentionally making a contrast between the cup of salvation versus the cup of wrath. Because on the one hand, in Psalm 116, verse 13, he says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. But on the other hand, the psalmist says in Psalm uh, 75, verse 8, he says, The Lord holds his cup of anger in his hand, and it's full of wine mixed with spices, and he pours it out even to the last drop, and the wicked drink it all. As if to say that because Jesus drank of the bitter cup of God's wrath, you get to drink of the sweet cup of God's salvation. And so ultimately, the communion cup this morning reminds us that, that we weren't spared from God's wrath because, because we're, we're, we're basically good people who do good things and we did enough good things to, to earn his favor. It, 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 we weren't spared because, we, because we're, we, we pray the right prayers and we, and we do the right stuff. No, we were spared because he took the cup of wrath to give us the cup of salvation. Here's an oldie but a goodie. I've shared this many times before, but it's about the lady who died and went to heaven. It's obviously a true story because Peter was there to meet her at the gate. And, and so Peter meets her and says, you know, hey, the way this works for me to let you in, you have to spell a word. If you spell it correctly, I can let you in. She says, okay, what's the word? And he says, love. She's like, oh, that's easy, L-O-V-E. He says, hey, welcome to heaven. Well, a few years later, he comes up and says, hey, I've got to be gone for a little while, and I want you to watch the gate for me. So she's standing at their gate, and lo and behold, her husband from a few years before, he shows up at, at the gates of heaven. She's like, oh, hey, how are you? And he's like, oh, man, I am fantastic, I'm just wonderful. In fact, you know that cute little nurse that was taking care of you right before you died? Well, two days after you died, we got married. And then we won the lottery. We hit it big. In fact, we sold that little dump that you and I used to live in, and we bought this big, beautiful mansion. And we bought a, a vacation home in Cancun, Mexico. In fact, that's where I just was. I was in Cancun. I was, I was water skiing, hit my head. I woke up here. Says, hey, how do I get in anyway? She folds her arms, clenches her teeth. She's like, well, to get in, you got to say a word. He's like, okay, what's the word? She's like, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> it's a true story. The point is, is that we're not saved we're not spared because we spelled the right word. We're not spared God's wrath because we go to the right church or we do the right rituals or we do the right things. No, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. In other words, we're spared, we're saved because he took the cup of wrath to give you the cup of salvation. Amen. So with that, the worship team is going to come up, lead us in worship. The ushers are going to come. They're going to serve you these cups. And then just, just take some time. Just spend some time between you and the Lord. Reflect. Think of what he's done in your life. Think of what he wants to continue to do in your life. Think of the price that was paid to fill this cup. I don't mean with the grape juice, but the fact that he went 
to the cross so that God's judgment could pass over you. He took the cup of wrath so that you could drink of the cup of salvation. So Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that in your grace that you so loved us, you so loved this whole world. Doesn't matter how bad we, we, we are or how good we think we are. You love this world so much that you gave your son, God in human flesh, in a human body, to be our substitute, to die the death that we should have died because of the sins that we have committed. But you took our wrath and you gave us your salvation. And we worship you for that this morning. We are grateful for that and we sing to you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.